0: Thank you, guys. Good evening. Good to see so many of you here this evening. This is a worship service. Uh, It is also a presbytery meeting. I'll explain that in just a minute. But first and foremost, it is a worship service, and so it's appropriate that we would have uh, singing and praying and also uh, a sermon, or I really thought it probably is more like an extended exhortation, uh, not only to Brandon, but to the rest of you. And so um, bear with me for a few minutes as I share some things from God's Word. If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn with me, you can. Or it's printed for you there in your worship folder, this selection. From 2 Timothy, chapter 2. Uh, I chose 2 Timothy because, uh, if if you're aware, this is Paul writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, who he has put in charge of churches that he has planted. And I thought about being an older man in ministry now and and, uh, giving an exhortation to a younger man in ministry. But also just about how I long for our church to be. A place where young men in ministry can come and can grow up and can learn to do ministry. And just that I hope that this will be a place, the tenderness and the compassion in, Paul, in Paul's words here to his son and the faith that, that Brandon and Rachel would experience that in our midst as well. And so I think this letter is appropriate for us to meditate on tonight uh, together. So if you would, let's look at these verses, these 13 verses here in first, Second Timothy chapter 2. The Apostle Paul writes, So then you, my child... Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuit, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything." Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. The offspring of David is preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Sane is trustworthy. Four, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. Uh, just, again, for a few minutes together this, this evening, and really, this is like I said, it's somewhat of an exhortation to Brandon as he um, officially uh, launches out into this ministry that God has called him here to. But I think, though the things that I will say tonight are particular to pastoral ministry, Uh, There are also many applications to all of Christian discipleship. It's true of all of us as we try to follow the Lord Jesus. So I really do think four things uh, from this passage. First, that there's a method that Paul gives us to the work that he calls us to. There's images, number two, that describe that work. There's very clearly the consequences that Paul understands to be part of the work. And then lastly, and this is where we always end, if you haven't noticed, in in our talks around here a lot, is there's the power. So you see the method and the images and the consequences and the power of the work that God has called Brandon here to do, but not just him, uh, all of us as he's given us ministry in the body and in the city that he's called us to. So let's start first with the method for the work. It's very simple. Look there, 2 Timothy 2.2. Paul says to his son, Timothy, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And really, there's a method and a goal, so I kind of cheated on this because he gives the method, but he also shows the goal there that's a part of the method. And, and, and it's really just a number of different things. So you see a priority that Paul gives to this young man first, and it's that he would, most of all, uh, what, what, the, what the old Puritan writers used to call self-watch. There's a call to self-watch, to prioritize Uh, your own personal growth towards maturity in the gospel so that you would have something to pass on. Paul says, pass on to faithful men and trust to them, but you have to have something to pass on to them. And so in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 and following, when Paul's saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders, he tells them, watch over the flock, but it's significant there. He says, watch over, keep watch over yourself and the flock. Don't forget first to watch over yourself, even as you're called to watch over the flock. In Hebrews, the Hebrews writer says to the Hebrew Christians, remember your leaders and consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith, which means that leaders in the church must therefore be imitatable. This is the greatest gift, Brandon, I think, that you give to the teenagers and the parents of the church. So I would say to you, from 1 Timothy 4, set an example in your youth in speech and conduct and love and in faith and impurity. Spurgeon wrote to his students in that great little book that he has, Lectures to My Students. He said, it is vain for me to stock my library or organize societies or project schemes if I neglect the culture of myself. For books and agencies and systems are only remote instruments of my holy calling. My own spirit, soul, and body are my nearest machinery for sacred service. My spiritual faculties and in my inner life are my battle axe and weapons of war. And then he goes down to say uh, this phrase: He says, "A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God." But not only do we see the priority of self-watch, we also see the method that Paul gives to this man here, and it's this idea of life-on-life discipleship. What what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so discipleship is the methodology for student ministry. As many years in student ministry, I can tell you this is true, and it's Brandon's strength, but for some strange reason, it doesn't translate to adult ministry often, but I think it should. And so, Brandon, the work that you're doing, going to the gym with the guys and hanging out at lunch and doing the things that you're doing and walking alongside of these teenagers is the work of pastoral ministry, according to Paul here. And so do that work. And then make this your goal in that work and it's to produce disciples. Paul says and do this so that you will produce men who will be able to teach others. Do you see that? In other words, not just average Joe Christians, but kids who will be leaders in their campus ministries when they Uh, graduate from high school here and go to the places that God sends them, who are not just trained well enough to survive in college, but to thrive and to be sources of life and strength for others. That when they, you know, when they go on to be leaders and officers in the churches that God calls them to, I've said so often, we want to plant churches, multiple churches in Winter Haven and all over Polk County for years to come. The harvest truly is plentiful, but the workers are few. And where will the workers come from for this work? Brandon, they are in your youth group right now. Those kids are the future elders and deacons and worship leaders and church planters and just leaders that will sustain a 50-year vision for ministry in our city. So which one of the gangly, awkward, hyperactive, sixth-grade boys is a future church planter? Right? Isn't that cool to think about? So the measure of your success is how well they can live without you. Not to increase their dependency upon you. That's a a danger in student ministry. But just like a parent, to work yourself out of a job. And I hope parents that you know that, right? Parents, you know that? We're supposed to be working ourselves out of a job. They're supposed to leave our house. So make that the goal. Something funny just happened over there, and I don't even want to know what it was. Okay? So you see the method. But not only the method, Paul goes on to give... Timothy, some of the images that describe his work, so he can have a a proper vision of what it is that he's being called to. Here, there are three metaphors that Paul uses to describe pastoral ministry. Not just pastoral ministry, though. It's really all of Christian living, and there are these. A minister is like a soldier. Do you see that? Verses 3 and 4. He's like an athlete, in in verse 5. And then a farmer, in verses 6 and 7. These describe all Christians. And so, why a soldier? Why a soldier there? Paul says, like a soldier... And the answer is because life is war. John Eldridge said, "Man is not born into a sitcom or a soap opera; he's born into a world at war." This is not home improvement. It's Saving Private Ryan. And Richard Baxter, in the Reformed Pastor, which is a great book about pastoral ministry, he he mentions he says it this way: He says, "Satan beareth the greatest malice to those that are engaged to do him the greatest mischief. Take heed, therefore, brethren, pastors." For the enemy has a special eye on you. You shall have his most subtle insinuations and incessant solicitations and violent assaults. Be a soldier because life is war. There's an enemy. He's prowling. But not only a soldier, be an athlete. And why an athlete? Well, be an athlete because life is a race. Not a sprint, but a marathon. It's hard. The Greek word often translated race and it was there in in Hebrews 12, which we read a few minutes ago, is the word agona. It's It means agony. It means strength. Uh, It it means something hard that you must do. But just like every... I mean, Brandon knows this. He's a fitness guy, so he knows the way you build strength is you have to develop. There's only one way to get stronger, and it's through the process of pain and adversity. Not only a soldier and an athlete, but also a farmer. And why a farmer? And I think the metaphor here of a farmer is because the human heart is a bit like a field. I mean, that's how Jesus put it in the parable of the sower, isn't it? That the different kinds of soil there... That represent the different states of the heart. And cultivating a person's heart is much like cultivating a field for harvest. You water and you weed and you fertilize. And you fuss over the plant. And that's how you grow a child into adulthood too. You cultivate through personal involvement and instruction. And that's how pastors lead people to spiritual maturity. They water them in baptism. They feed them with the word and the sacraments. They weed through church planting. They fuss and worry and spend sleepless nights in prayer. And all of these images also show something of what is required of us in our work. So these three things here, a soldier and an athlete and a farmer, and I really think there's a couple of really good lessons that we can learn here, and I'll mention just two. And the first thing is, what do all three of these have in common? And the first thing that came to my mind when I thought about them was the word discipline. A soldier, to be a good soldier, has to be disciplined. If he isn't disciplined, if he can't obey orders, then people die. Quite literally. A soldier's whole life is ordered around the idea of discipline and preparedness. And the same with an athlete, right? An athlete's whole life, what they eat and how much they sleep and the daily routine, all of these things is shaped around the goal of maximizing their physical and mental efforts. I mean, talent is not enough. Uh, There has to be discipline. And the most successful quarterbacks are not always the most talented. They're the ones who who are the most prepared, who put time in the film room and practice. And it's the same with a farmer, isn't it? What What happens if the farmer takes a day off? What happens if he's lax in making sure the crops are properly fertilized in water? So when I think of a soldier or an athlete or a farmer, I think first of discipline. You can't effectively minister or live effectively without discipline. But then there's another thing, and the second thing that came to mind when I thought of these three images together was the need for patience. Patience. And the word patience in the Bible is long-suffering. It means the ability to suffer for a long time in order to achieve a result or a goal. See, a teenager doesn't walk into a recruiting office and then two days later they give him a gun and point him at the enemy. No, what happens? Recruits have to suffer long first, long. Olympic athletes, some of them, it still amazes me, some of them train every day for four years for an event that lasts 45 seconds. You know, farming, so they tell me, is slow work. Rick would know. Rick could tell us. You, uh, it takes forever to get the plants to grow and begin to bear fruit. You can't be in a hurry. It's, it, it's in, you can't be in a hurry and be a farmer. If you're too easily discouraged, you won't make it as an athlete. If you melt down when things get tough, soldiering probably isn't for you, and neither is pastoral ministry. For, so Paul writes, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. I endure, he says. I keep going. No matter what happens, I refuse to quit. I refuse to give up. No matter how hard it gets, no matter how long it takes, no matter how much evidence there is that nothing is happening, I just refuse to quit. And that would be my encouragement to all of us as well, that we just not quit. I endure, he says. But then thirdly, not only do we see the method for the work for all of us, and some of the images that describe it, but we see the consequence as well. And Paul does not shy away from giving Timothy the real picture of what pastoral ministry is like, does he? He says, verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And we talk about this all the time around here, gratefully, thankfully, but following Jesus is a downward movement into suffering and death. There is no glory without a cross. Following Jesus leads you into Inconvenience, and heartbreak, and sadness, and loss. It is not the solution to a hard life. It is the occasion for a hard life. And that is what Paul is referring to in Second Corinthians 11, isn't it? When he talks about the badge of his apostleship, which he mentions toil and hardship and sleepless nights and all of these things that are horrible. And then at the end, as if, you know, you think, what could be worse than any of those things? It's fascinating at the end, he says, above all of these. Now, all of these is shipwrecks and beatings and, I mean, really, you can't imagine the list of things. But he says, above all of these, beyond even all of these things I've mentioned, there is the pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. And that phrase describes the travail of a person who has been given care of souls, one of which is more valuable than all of the treasures of the world, and who must give an account before the judgment seat of Christ for those he's been given to care for. And Paul says, that's worse than shipwrecks. (laughs) That's worse than being beaten. That's why you should pray for us, because we live with that, and Brandon lives with it too, and it really is a part of... The suffering that 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 God is calling him to ministry binds you. It puts you into chains. Do you see that, Paul? This is what for Paul was quite literal, wasn't it? Preaching the gospel put him into prison. Now, Brandon, I doubt it will mean the same for you or me. But 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 it will bind you. It will trap you. That's why we take vows to one another. It's why Brandon's going to come up here and he's going to take vows to you, and you're going to take vows to him. It's why we do this in membership. It's it's why we do things the way we do. We we vow, we take vows to one another, because a vow is like a chain that binds us to each other. And it's an important part of of, you know faithfulness to the task that God has called us to. And so the application of this is Paul again, if I could come back to it one more time, Paul says then if they're you know, knowing this to be true, that this is the consequence, Paul says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And I'll tell you, this has become my goal for 50 years in ministry. Um, and so pray this for me, pray this for Brandon, pray this for all of us, just to make it to the end. I mean, you want to have an impact in your ministry? You don't have to be great. You don't have to be talented. You just have to be there. And stay there. I mean, you, any, any of you, you want to have impact? You, know, you want to you change somebody's life? You don't, have to, you don't have to be great. You don't have to be talented. Just show up day after day after day after day. Commit to being their friend and then decide that no matter what happens, you'll never walk away from the relationship. That's powerful. And that's the mark of a person that has been touched by God's grace, the perseverance of the saints, right? This is what we believe, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And so lastly then, Lastly, not only, not only the method and the images and the consequence, but also uh, the power for the work. And it's just here in verse 8, if you look there with me, where Paul turns Timothy's heart and mind to the gospel when he says, remember, remember in the middle of all that I'm calling you to, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Remember Jesus Christ. That means, of course, that there is a danger of forgetting, even in ministry, especially in ministry, and forgetting can mean one of two things. It can mean that it can mean that you're undervaluing yourself and thinking too little of the work that God has called you to, or, uh, or you can overvalue what, what, what God has made you to be and the role that he's called you to in people's lives. Either of those two things. And so let me just finish by, by looking at those. You can undervalue. You can undervalue yourself, think too little of the work that God has given you to do and the role that you have in the lives of the people he's called you to. It's a temptation to all pastors. Uh, There's a scene in the Pilgrim's Progress, which is Bunyan's great work about the Christian life, where very shortly after a Christian sets off on his journey, he meets a man called Worldly Wise Man who tells him about a village named Morality, in which lives a gentleman by the name of Legality and his son, Civility, who can help him with the heavy burden on his back. Now, listen to this. This is great. This is Bunyan. He says, now, he was a very judicious man of the highest reputation, and as such, He is well able to assist men with the removal of their burdens, the burden of sin he's talking about, from their shoulders such as you have. And there you can be relieved of your burden. There you will also find suitable empty houses available that are reasonably priced. Living standards and food, while being expensive, are of very high quality. Added to this enjoyable environment would be the company of honest neighbors who maintain financial security and an attractive lifestyle. Now this is Bunyan's way of describing the temptation for all of us to slide subtly into moralism. And it's a temptation for pastors as well. So you can be a nice, moral, respectable Christian person who's well thought of in the community and lives in a nice neighborhood. Not a gated community, but a nice neighborhood. (laughs) Just kidding. Right. Uh, And stands for family values and all of these things. You can surround yourself with other nice people who share the same values whose kids are well-behaved and mannerly and self-motivated, you can think that that's Christianity, this southern living lifestyle. Everybody's nice and stable and clean, and that's what worldly wise man tempts Christian with. Become that, he says, and Bunyan understands the spiritual danger of that vision of life and where uh, it leads, and he wants us to as well, that the allure of moralism and civility to make a nice, comfortable, moral lifestyle out of Christianity with a little bit of Jesus added on but being nice and moral doesn't make you Christian. We don't believe in salvation by niceness. Right? Southern evangelical culture does, but we don't. So the gospel is the salvation by grace and this turning aside to morality even subtly is a great spiritual danger as Christian approaches the village morality. He's met by evangelist again and evangelist says to him, "Why are you here?" Why have you turned aside? Don't you know your being here puts you in danger of hell? See, innocuous moralism that produces well-mannered, well-dressed, bow-tied, conservative, theologically capable young adults, not only endangers your soul, but it endangers the soul of those under your care. So, Brandon, don't think too little of your work. Be revolutionary. Make people upset every now and then. Challenge. Parents who aren't doing their jobs. Parents, can you give them permission to do that? Make sure the kids in your youth group are mad at you from time to time. It'll be good for you and them. Okay? But there's a far more sinister side to this moralism, and that is that you could begin to overvalue your own gifts and think too highly of your work and your place in people's lives. And Spurgeon put this this way, and I'm coming to an end. He says, Don't preach the gospel in order to save your soul. Don't grow business in order to save your soul, men. Don't parent your children, ladies, in order to save your soul, but definitely don't preach the gospel to save your soul. Romans 1:17 says, "He through faith is righteous." He who through faith is righteous shall live, which of course means he who through ministry success or business success or parenting success, whatever the case may be, he who is right, through those things is righteous shall die. So there's a choice. You can either die trying to find your righteousness in your performance or you can die too trying Paul says, remember Jesus Christ. Make him, make Christ the great aim of your life and ministry, out, and minister out of the overflow of the new discoveries of his mercy and grace towards you. Talk about and point people to him, minister out of your weakness, and leave people and the kids in your group impressed with his grace and not your gifts. Make it, I think, I think this is a great, Brandon, make it your aim that the teenagers in your ministry know him as a friend and not just you. Remember Jesus Christ, Paul says, risen from the dead. Isn't that great? And so as he calls you to share in suffering as a good soldier, know that whatever downward movement into death he leads you into, there remains the promise of resurrection. There is no death without a resurrection. Jesus' story did not end at the cross, right? It ended with resurrection, which of course means that whatever shape, the story, any of us in the room tonight, uh, whatever the shape of the story of our life is, Brandon, whatever the shape, the story of your ministry at this church takes, it will end in resurrection. Because Paul goes on to say, if we die with him, We will also live with them. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. He not only suffered and died, but was raised and he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Ruling over the world as the rightful king, heir to David's throne. And it is the context of that, of his loving, wise, gracious rule over all things that we work and minister. And that should give us hope. And this leads Paul to conclude with this statement, and I will as well. He says down in verse 13, If we are faith, faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Do you know what that means? Brandon and Rachel Church, it means that our ministry does not depend upon our faithfulness but his. That the power is not in our love for him but in his love for us. That success is not dependent upon the strength of our commitment to him, but the strength of his commitment to us, which is founded upon the strength of his commitment to his own glory. And so where your strength fails you, his strength never will. And where your wisdom is not sufficient for the problem you're facing, his is. And when ministry takes you to the end of yourself, or when life takes you to the end of yourself, that is not the moment of despair, but hope because of the promise in the scripture that his grace is sufficient. And when we are weak... And we are truly strong. Even when we are faithless. He is faithful. What great, great hope. Right? So let's pray. Can we do that? Father, thank you for these words. May they minister to our hearts and encourage us. Encourage Brendan and Rachel and workers and leaders in this church tonight. Thank you for your scripture that is living and active. Uh, that equips us for every good work of ministry that you call us to. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, may we remember him even in these moments, Uh, and may Brandon do so in the days and weeks and years to come, so that in all things you might be glorified in us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, praise the Lord. Now Jonathan Winfrey, teaching elder Jonathan Winfrey, is going to come and give a charge to Brandon, and then after him, Stan McMahon, who's a teaching elder at Trinity Presbyterian, will come and give a charge to the congregation.
1: Surrounded by short people. Brandon's no different. We have hired another shorty. Uh, Brandon and I, well, we spent a couple of days together uh, when they came to interview. Uh, And he told me later uh, when they left, he said to Rachel, I'm not sure he likes me. (laughs) Uh, I hope six months in, we're starting... There's a phrase, you're get on, you get on together like a house on fire. Where The wick has been burning and we're starting to, you know, erupt in flames. Um, but uh, we, uh, we enjoy one another a lot, I think. Uh, I certainly am growing in my love for him and appreciation of his work. I want to read uh, to you a few verses from 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2. So listen to these words again from the Apostle Paul. He says, For we never came with words of flattery, As you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God, your witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Um, I, I want to Charge you with a couple of things from 1 Thessalonians 2. The the framework for this is verse 8, where he says, We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our our very selves, our own selves. Uh, And you can't share the gospel without sharing yourself, right? Uh, Look at Jesus. He didn't just walk around dispensing truth, teaching. He wasn't just a rabbi, he wasn't just an instructor, a prophet, he was a friend. He was a brother, a son. He related to those who were hurting. He interrupted his schedule to ask, what do you want me to do for you? Uh, And and one way to know if you're sharing your very life is the beginning of verse 8. He says, so being affectionately desirous of you. I didn't get a chance to ask Stan beforehand what the Greek is there and what that exactly means. Um, and I don't have that fancy software. Drew said, just be faithful. You don't have to be talented. Just be faithful. So I'm going with that. But I know affectionately desirous means really important. Right? It means it, it, it means warmth. And so I would ask, are, are, are you affectionately desirous of those you've been called the shepherd to tend to, to watch over? I would charge you to be affectionately desirous of them. I would charge you to be very dear to them and them to you. He says, you had become so very dear to us that we shared the gospel, but not only the gospel, our very selves. But before that, he frames it with, uh, with, with two very interesting things. First, he says we were gentle. Gentle, and then he says like a nursing mother. Uh, and what's that picture? It's a picture of softness, of tenderness, of affectionate, Affectionateness, if that's a word, quietly supporting, right? Like Messiah, it's not snuffing out a smoldering wick. So you 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 get a student, they're barely hanging on. How do you deal with them? I charge you to be gentle, like a nursing mother. Just like Carson needs the nurturing care of Rachel, so do the students need your nurturing care? So every once in a while, ask her. So how do you do it? Because she give you some advice on how to nurture. Because his men were not natural nurturers. But what's fascinating is Paul says, We were among you as nursing mothers. We were gentle among you, as a mother taking care of her own children. But secondly, go down to verse 11, and he says, We weren't just motherly and gentle among you. We were like a father with his children. This one you can relate better to, right? He says, Like a father, we exhorted, we encouraged, we charged. And so I would charge you to call those under your care out on their sin, right? Confront them, challenge them, exhort them with truth, encourage them to walk in it, challenge them, charge them to battle sin, to go after unbelief in their own hearts as you share the gospel working, as Paul says here, day and night, just like Carson Increasingly need your instruction and your guidance and your exhortation to repent and obey. So do the students. So the motherly side, the fatherly side, one without the other produces imbalance and mushiness. Think about people who grow up without a mother. But think about also people who grow up without a father. You need both. You've got to have both. And pastoral ministry, what's fascinating here is Paul says pastoral ministry is both. The wonder of it is that the Holy Spirit can produce motherliness and fatherliness in the same person. He's doing it in me, which is amazing that he would produce. I'll I'll let you guess which one is amazing that he's producing in me. But he is producing both of them in me. And my prayer for you, my charge to you, is to pursue both of those concurrently on parallel tracks as you minister among our students and their families. Okay? Amen. Amen. This is kind of tall. I'm surrounded by tall people
2: <laughs> all the time. Uh, it, is, it is very good to be here. Um, as Drew said, I'm Stan McMahan, associate pastor over at Trinity. And over the past several months, I've gotten to know Brandon as he's prepared to take the exams that we require people to take as they transfer into our presbytery. And I'm just so delighted for you. I'm delighted for your students. I'm delighted for your family. Uh, and it's really <clears throat> a privilege for me tonight to charge you. So what we've just done is we've, we've built a relationship here tonight. This is very much like a marriage service. Uh, vows were exchanged. There are two parties in this relationship, and now we get to think about what's your role. What's your role? We've heard so much about what Brandon's role is and how he's to remember the Lord Jesus Christ and be that fatherly and that motherly figure to the students here. But what's the role of the congregation as you receive a pastor into your midst How do you help them succeed? I want you to look at one verse. Uh, It's in the book of Hebrews chapter 13, and it's verse 17. Uh, If you have your Bible, you can look at it with me. It says, Obey your leaders. This is the, the writer to the Hebrews here, writing to a congregation very much like Church of the Redeemer. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. What I see in that verse is that, especially about you as a congregation, what your responsibility is, is that this ministry that Brandon is undertaking in this church is one that could go one of two ways. Uh, either on the one hand, it could cause Brandon much suffering and much groaning, it says there in that verse. Or on the other hand, this could be a work that fills Brandon and his family's heart With great joy. This could be an opportunity for Brandon to become an even better Christian than he already is, that that his heart would be so bursting at the seams with joy in his Savior and joy in the way that he gets to trace out his Savior's hand in the lives of the students and the families here at the Church of the Redeemer. And what this verse is saying is that so much of that, not all of that, but so much of that depends on your response to Brandon's ministry. The way that you interact with Brandon and his family is going to determine whether Brandon is buckling under the weight of a heavy burden and barely getting by. Or whether he is, can say throughout his ministry and at the end of it, man, my heart is overflowing with joy. And I know that you want that for him. First, notice what it says there in the verse that there are some real significant reasons why this particular role that he's coming into could be overburdening. It could cause groaning. Notice what it says there in verse 17 at the very beginning. It says that he is keeping watch over your souls. That's the pastoral role. We've already heard there's a lot of metaphors in the Bible for this job. And one of the other metaphors is that of a shepherd. And here when it says that he, keep, he keeps watch over the souls, it's the, the role of the shepherd that's in mind. And you know, if you've ever kept any kind of livestock, I don't know if there's anybody in here who has. My family does down in Mulberry, and there's a lot of work that goes into that. There's keeping watch over them, carrying around the, the animals on your heart all the time. There's sleepless nights. There's having to go out and mend fence for the 18th million time uh, this month. There's uh, fighting off enemies. There's all this stuff that, that, that weighs you down because you're so concerned for those that are under your care. And that's the picture that God gives us for the pastoral role. Brandon is going to carry around the, the students of this church, the students in this city of Winterhaven on his heart. And that could be overwhelming to him. I think about what Jacob said in Genesis 31 when he complained to his father-in-law Laban about his job as a shepherd. He said, there I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and, and my sleep fled from my eyes. And many a pastor can relate to that. The other aspect of the work that can be so crushing is that it's a stewardship. It's not just shepherding. It's, it's shepherding as a steward. It says there that he, he keeps watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Brandon knows, and he's going to be increasingly coming under this impression as he undertakes this work, that he's not only carrying the lives of your students and families on his heart now, day to day, as he does his ministry, but he will carry those students right up into the very throne room of heaven. And one day, he'll stand before our awesome God, and he'll have to give an account for the work that he's been given to do. This work could really crush someone. So why is it, how is it that someone could have joy in the work? What role does the congregation have? Why does the, the writer here say, let them do this with joy, as if it's in the ball is in your court? You're the one who's able to keep them from that crushing feeling and to give them that, that fullness of joy in the Lord and in the work that you've given them to do. Well, there's just a few things that I would like to suggest to you. The first one is that you've got to open up your hearts to Brandon and his family. You've got to get to know them. You're going to have to get in there in their lives so that you can share together in the work that God is doing in your families. You've got to know him well enough that you know when he, he's starting to drag, when, when he's starting to feel downcast in his ministry and discouraged. You've got to commit to pray for him and to encourage him and his family to honor them for all the labor in their lives. But most of all, this is the most important thing of all, what gives a pastor like Brandon great joy in his work is the spiritual health of those that he's called to care for. So my charge to you, the the summation of it all would be this. You find your joy. Labor with all of your heart to find your joy in Christ Jesus because you doing that will overflow Brandon's heart with joy in his Savior and the work that he's given him to do. So students, I'm talking to you. Families here, I'm talking to you. The, The whole congregation, think about he's a shepherd. What makes a shepherd happy? is to look out over his flock and see them resting they found the still waters they found the green pastures and so you can give him joy by laboring not to find rest in created things or to find rest in moralism but to find rest only in Jesus Christ what gives a steward joy a steward is charged to take the master's goods and Share them with the master's house for the good of the master's people. And so the, the steward rejoices when he sees that the master's people are in good order and in good health. And so I say to you, let Brandon have joy in his ministry by pursuing more and more growth in Christ in your life. Students, it's never too early to begin that. That process begins right now. Always be reaching beyond your grasp in Christ. Always be looking only to him for that spiritual growth and prosperity that he can bring. And finally, this is my favorite image. That of a best man or a friend of the bridegroom. That's what a pastor is. John the Baptist said as much in John chapter 3 when he said, I'm not the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. He is the bridegroom. The bridegroom is the one who has the bride. And he says, I am just the best man. I'm just the friend of the bride. My joy is made complete. When I see the bride head over heels for the groom, when I see people coming to Christ and being completely satisfied in him, that's when my heart bursts with joy. And so I say to you, let Brandon have joy. And the way you do that is by falling in love more and more with Christ, by giving your lives as in a marriage single-heartedly, devotedly to him. As we say in the marriage vows, forsake all others and commit yourself to Jesus. If you do those things, Brandon's ministry will not be a burden. He will not routinely wake up and face his job with a heavy heart and dragging his feet, but he'll come bounding in, excited to see what else God will do. As one elder in another time and place said, David Dixon, he said, As friends of the bridegroom, pastors and elders are to be helps and witnesses to the betrothal of sinners to Jesus, the marriage of sinners to Jesus. They get the privilege of standing by and seeing the salvation of God. They get to watch the operations of his hand. They get to guide and to encourage God's ransomed ones on their way to heaven. They get to see many of them safe at home before himself. These are the privileges of a faithful elder. I say to you, students, congregation of Church of the Redeemer, let him have joy. Give your hearts to Christ. Pour yourselves out. Open up your hearts to Brandon as he does his ministry. Let's pray. Well, Father, we do thank you uh, that you are the one who calls. We thank you that all along the way to that, tonight in the service, we've, we've just been reminded again and again that this is all initiated by you. This is all sustained by you. And so, God, we ask that you would grant to this congregation the, the joy and the Lord that they need, the open-heartedness that they need in order to help Brandon not lose heart, not to grow faint in his work. Father, fill us with your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank you, Stan. Uh, thank you for being a church, that it is a joy to serve you. Uh, the BCO, our Book of Church Order, reminds you that after the service is over that, uh, that we should um, cordially uh, receive and affectionately regard uh, Brandon and Rachel and their family, and so make sure that you do that. We're going to try to make that happen by gathering in, in Covenant Hall across the way for a brief reception, so please come up there and have a few uh, treats and something to drink. I remember uh, one last parting thing. I remember when Brandon preached in December, I guess, or whatever it was that he preached, January. Uh, I, we went home after the service. We were talking, and Ashley said something that was really striking to me. She said, you know, listening to him, I trust him with our kids. Uh, and so we are grateful uh, for the Lord uh, in sending him to us. And so thank you for being here tonight. Uh, I really, really appreciate your thoughtfulness in coming out. Uh, so we're going to sing together now, and then Brandon's going to pronounce a benediction over us. So if you would stand.
2: Not as tall as Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs>
0: My wife and I are very,
2: very happy to be here. Uh, I won't say anything else. I'll start crying. Uh, but please receive the Lord's benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you.
0: May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, amen.